One of the difficulties that I got was uh, non-supportive systems from my mm. my seniors. My seniors, I remember when I was short, I didn't get. Uh, I still believe I didn't get that real support. And even some of our officers, when they are traumatized, maybe we don't. We just blame them, and we don't want actually to understand. So th- that is really an experience that I. So I have to change the narrative. Mm. As a boss to somebody, and this somebody becomes maybe stressed or traumatized, mm. like me, I was. I will not do what was done to me. I will actually do the positive one. Gitai Kenyaki is a 36-year veteran of the Kenyan National Police Service. His career spans operations against cattle rustlers in Turkana through extraordinary violence after the 2008 elections to internal action against serious misconduct. And that history has entailed more than anyone's fair share of traumatic experiences, both for him and for his family. In this episode, we talk about what that was like to live and work through. And beyond that, what can be done and what is being done for trauma healing, trauma recovery, within an institution like the NPS. Our first half is with Gitai himself. And in the second half, we switch perspective to Balthas Betty. He's a program manager with the Green String Network, and he talks very eloquently about design and delivery of an initiative like this. He also speaks to the challenges of supporting an institution that is often maligned within Kenya and often with good cause, as we as we heard in our previous episode, uh, from the perspective of a Nairobi slum neighborhood. So taken as a whole, this episode is really a reflection on the personal costs and also the rewards of service with an institution that is indisputably necessary, irreplaceable, while also indisputably flawed, and how we respect that journey and the agency of people who take it. This is One Step Forward. My name is Ian Quick. Let's get to it. The place I usually start these is is pretty straightforward. When you meet someone socially, how do you describe what you do for a living? How do you introduce yourself in that way? Uh, For me... I'm a proud police officer. I'm also a father. I'm married to one wife. And I have four kids. And I'm a grandfather of three grandchildren. This is my 36th year being a police officer. Having started from the lowest rank, that's the constable rising all above to an assistant inspector general. Currently... I work in the Internal Affairs Unit as a Deputy Director, and uh, the Internal Affairs Unit handles issues of complaints against police. But I also handle a lot of issues in terms of stress management in the police service, counseling police officers who are affected psychologically. And uh, it's a passion to me. It's a passion. Because for me to join the police... It was, I think, an accident. I wanted to be a teacher. 
but mm. I joined the police as a musician. A musician? Yes. I'm a player of brass instruments. You still play? Yeah, that's trombone, euphonium, cornet, trumpet. So I joined the police as a musician in brass instruments. After that, then I was transferred mm. to now do the normal police work out of Nairobi to a place called Narok. And that's the time I started now seeing the real work of the police in terms of doing the community policy, saying that people are safe and protecting their property, protecting their life. Is when now I've started now having the element of what the police officers go in terms of stress, mm-hmm. psychological aspect and that. What do the everyday stresses, or what did the everyday stresses of police look like at that time? What were the hard parts? Uh, when you join the police, there are very many areas that you can serve. Mm. From the report office, from the children, gender departments or units, traffic departments, patrolling mm-hmm. and uh, <coughs> operations. They are, in our country here in the northern part, we have the cattle rustlers. Mm-hmm. And these are operations done by actually police officers where maybe some communities steal cattle and animals. So the police has to be there. And it depends sometimes because you've come from a, maybe a community where this cattle rustling is not there. Mm. And then as a police officer, you find yourself now handling cattle rustling. And sometimes you don't know the, the community well. And if you start to understand it, uh, before you understand it, and sometimes you can be injured. Mm-hmm. I've witnessed uh, police officers having been injured. I've witnessed police officers having been killed in operations. I've seen police officers uh, even being shot dead or shot and injured during robberies. And it's very stressful to the surviving police officers. And if the police officers have passed on their families, and even the people who are loved for them. Mm. Is it always that kind of violent incident, or is there also sort of an accumulation of things over the course of a career? I'm conscious that the police are quite, um, what's the word, particularly this week, I mean, it's been quite obvious, right? There's been a, a, a difficult relationship at times with the public, and that must take it's tall, right? People don't like to be uh, feared. They don't like to be attacked in the media, etc. It must be difficult to have that kind of tough relationship with some parts of the community, no? Yeah, that's very... It's very uh, discouraging sometimes when we see members of the public maybe lose their life in the mm. hands of the police. And also, it's also discouraging seeing police officers losing their lives in the hands of the members of the public. And um, what I can say is that if it happens that maybe a member of the public has actually lost his or her life in the hands of the police, that is an element of that individual police officers. Mm -hmm. But here we have a culture that when one police officer has done a bad thing, is now the collective responsibility all the police officers. But I think it's also a feeling that we as human beings in the police have that feeling. But sometimes uh, the law is very clear mm-hmm. when to use necessary force. Mm-hmm. 
but for those maybe who might use uh, not the necessary force the rule is very clear the mm. investigation to be done there are institution like independent policing oversight authority to take action and as you've said the relationship has really uh, grown apart and there's need to bring this relationship closer for me i believe that we have a room to to actually mend our ways as police officers the same case applies to the members of the public they have a room to mend mm. their own way of handling police officers the law is very clear mm. the police will be there always because today these police officers have maybe shot accidentally a person and after two hours your house is broken in you will just rush to the police station mm. the same police station you so we need to 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 put a line where do we draw the line is it that because now they have one of them have shot and we have been robbed we cannot go to 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 report to them we need to 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 give the, the benefit of fact that one individual cannot be cannot make the whole institution be blamed sticking with with the police sort of side of that narrative for the for the moment what sort of problems do we see for officers who have I mean maybe even some fairly new officers but certainly ones who've been doing 10 20 36 years what kind of problems do you, do you see coming up after for long serving officers i think sometimes sometimes the 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 the, the, the young officers who have come in the service maybe they lack motivation mentorship uh, they join the service maybe knowing that there's a lot of money but uh, the salary of the police in this country is literally very low yeah. it's it's not a secret comparing to the work the police do it's really very low some of them don't have the calling mm-hmm. of serving the community mm-hmm. maybe they just came because i had no job mm-hmm. so i joined the police mm-hmm. some of them are educated and they come and they see their colleagues who went to the banking center to the corporate world they get a lot of salary they are driving good vehicles they are build good cars but when you join the police as a graduate maybe from the university you'll just start with that salary mm. which is very major there's that anger of oh no i made i made a mistake mm. but then in that situation it may push you into maybe being a corrupt police officer but uh, also psychologically yeah we the regulation is very clear that a police officer who is in this country so well that he will work anywhere in the country mm-hmm. so how you are deployed maybe deployed far away from your family from your home and maybe reaching your wife reaching your children reaching your family is a difficult staying away from your family for sometimes putting in regard that when you are traveling you are using a lot of expenses mm-hmm. so i think one of the things psychologically is that they are affected maybe out of the trauma they undergo mm-hmm. so there is no that f- f- family support systems around them unlike other countries I traveled to uk to us sweden and i have seen how maybe the police officers employ this stay with their families mm-hmm. their, their medical cover is maybe very good the package of the housing is good and maybe they are given a car and even their salaries are good and also their relationship with the community is good Mm. but now you are employed here maybe in the police and then you are posted to somewhere where you don't even know the culture and all of a sudden you find this a conflict between yourself and the culture of the other side so these are some of the small things that affect the young officers and 
what sort of consequences does that have for them? They're not necessarily diagnosed with a mental illness, of course, but I assume they uh, this has consequences in terms of their their well-being and oh, yeah. and their family's well-being. Yes, yes, that one is very right because a stressed officer, a traumatized officer, an officer who is not in his upkeep the way he would want to be. Uh, some of them are pushed into maybe committing suicide. Some of them are pushed into maybe creating an environment of violence, mm-hmm. even to their colleagues or to their the public which are there. Some of them might be maybe into temptation of having extramarital affairs and mm-hmm. the, the issue of the chronic disease. Some of them, the consequences is that maybe they sometimes even are taken to court because of breaking the law. Mm-hmm. Maybe they have lost their guns. Maybe they have gone into robberies. Some of them, not very many. Just a small a bit number. And uh, maybe even not actually bearing in mind that uh, their salary, um, sometimes they go into corruption. They are arrested by the institution which actually suddenly corruption issue in the country. And this one, some of the consequences. Yeah, and of course, they're supporting families, and in some cases, extended families. So, those yeah. consequences ripple. Yes, ripple yes, upwards. and also when these things happen, it affects the families. You may find a lot of divorces, mm-hmm. separations, mm-hmm. a lot of distress or stress or even uh, psychological effects. The children may be not going to school, and if, for example, maybe the wife is not working, and the father who is a police officer or the husband who is a police officer is the only breadwinner and these things have happened so you can imagine mm. how stressful it can be to you are not getting the daily bread you're not getting food you're not getting shelter children are not going to school uniform books and all these things so what kind of support structure from a mental health point of view exists at the moment I assume uh, when you started, it would have been very, very limited. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> Maybe yeah. there's a little bit more now? When I joined the police, the number of the police was so not a big number like now. Mm-hmm. And there were, no, there were no issues about uh, mental issues. But all of a sudden, at some point from early 90s, I think 90s and late 80s, that's when we started seeing some of these things coming up which are, are related to mental issues, like committing suicide, like uh, officers being berserk, killing mm-hmm. their colleagues, killing their members of the public, killing themselves. Mm-hmm. So currently, according to me, uh, we don't have a very robust mechanism to handle that. But they are, they are, they are, they are, the Inspector General has come up with a way of trying to bring up systems that can help the police officers. Is there is now an established office which handles issues of psychological issue and mental issue, but it just started the other day. And actually, I know we have started started being recruited. These are officers who have counseling psychology skills to be peers, mm-hmm. and some of the training like this one go and help the other people. And I know other organizations like GSN. There is a money counseling center and other organizations that come in to try to support the police. But internally, we really don't have a real system. 
team to support but i'm happy that the the journey has started mm. the journey has started we can see even uh, psychologists being employed can i ask how you became uh, interested or involved in these issues oh yeah when when does when did that happen um it's a journey to be where i am it's a long journey and it's very traumatic i remember when i was working somewhere called in trukana mm-hmm. and we were going to actually hunt for our meat we were calling the this the antelopes and we went to, uh, to 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 hunt in the morning we didn't know that there was a ambush of some bandits mm-hmm. around 60 of them and we were three so uh, these guys were to shoot us but lucky enough we were not shot but they took our guns they took our uniforms and um, lucky enough uh, the, the the bandits come from Ethiopia they are called Marilles mm-hmm. and they are great enemies with the Tukanas of Kenya that's very work so there is a cultural aspect that actually saved me and my two colleagues uh, the Marilles are circumcised in their culture and the Tukanas are not circumcised okay. so when these guys took our uniform they had to make sure that if we are Tukanas they kill us and if we are not maybe they think I was mm. so when they went to look at our private past the penis they found that oh we are all circumcised because my two colleagues one was from kisi community and the other one was from kalenjin community and i come from kikuyu community which mm. all these communities are circumcised so that one saved us we we were actually not uh, killed but we just went back we were released but our guns and uniform were taken away Although later we came to recover the guns I think after two weeks and then the another time is when I was shot um that one the story that I'm telling you was 1997 but in 2000 on 11th June 2000 I was shot I was leading a contingent of about 36 people officers and we happened to have gotten bandits who attacked uh, a community and stole the cattle mm-hmm. so we had to follow and then shooting ensured and we had to try to protect the cattle for this community and a fight to ensured and as we were fighting i was actually shot if you look at my face there this is a bullet but lucky it is not go this way it is just a crash this way yes, and yes. here yes. and then if you look at my leg that one this uh, yep, bullet yeah yeah <laughs> so when i went to the hospital when i was admitted because of this leg i stayed there for 3 months there's this catholic nurse sister mm. who actually was coming to me talking to me so i was feeling that i'm so attracted to her talks very mm. well and i didn't know that she was actually doing some counseling to do by myself uh, by yeah by myself <laughs> so i started now having interest and then when i came out of the office now i understood what is counseling i knew how to carry the trauma why i was so traumatized how do i go about with my trauma and then in 207 208 i worked in where there was a lot of fighting Mm. I saw very many people killed and in my station there was a fire which broke on the road it's called Sachangwan where almost 200 people died out of a fire when they were uh, siphoning fuel mm. uh, petrol and the fire broke there and people died very many of them so after seeing all these deaths then I decided I think I need to to to, to read something about counseling mm. so that's when I joined I went back to school and did a bachelor's in counseling psychology and i did a lot of practices i did a lot of courses small elements and i felt that the police needed me 
for this uh, actually when a police officer gets these issues of counseling, I mean an issue of stress, he needs somebody's support system in the police. So I that's how I entered into this world of helping my colleagues, police officers psychologically. Mm. That's just a bit of my life. I mean, I'm sure there's a lot more to the story, of course, but it's it's easy to understand how uh, you would get to a place where you had some trauma in your mind that you needed to deal with. I'm curious what happened when you took that realization to other police officers. How did they react to that? Were they open to this idea or was it difficult to have that kind of conversation? Well, one of the difficulties I got here was uh, non-supportive systems from my, mm. my seniors. My seniors, I remember when I was short, I didn't get, uh, I still believe I didn't get that real support. And even some of our officers, when they are traumatized, maybe we don't, we just blame them and we don't want actually to understand. So that is really an experience that I, so I have to change the narrative. Mm. As a boss to somebody, and this somebody becomes maybe stressed or traumatized, Mm. like me, I was, I will not do what was done to me. I will actually do the positive one. Uh, one strength that I had in me as I was growing, I was privileged to be growing in terms of ranks. I, I had a lot of making friends mm-hmm. within the service. So I was known as a friendly person. Yeah, Remember, I joined as a musician. And music, yeah. we, we the music were people who can make other people happy. So I grew up in my ranks not saying that these are junior officers. Mm. I saw them as my colleagues and I did not actually close any door for any person who was around me. And I did it first voluntarily. Actually, I'm not working in the Department of Psychology in the police or a counseling psychology or chaplain. But I always, I'm always being pulled to come and do it because it's my passion. It's my passion. It was difficult for, for some of them because maybe the police are trained there is no cry. You have to be strong. You have to be courageous. You don't share everything. Oh. So when I approach you, I come as a friend first. Mm-hmm. I'll not force you, but I want just to listen. And some of these officers just want somebody to listen to them. And that's how I approach it. It may have to be difficult to get some of them, mm. but uh, slowly, slowly, I have been accommodated. First is to create a trust between I and them. Mm. And then create a space. You come from up there, come down into their level. Don't pull them to come up. Accommodate them. Mm. Simple things like eating with them. We eat the same food. We sit on the same round table like this one. Not that uh, that way of a boss and subjects. Mm-hmm. That is not the, the, the way you can go for it. And uh, police officers are used to that and giving them a lot of listening, giving them the stories of how you started mm. and appreciating that that is, was my time and mm. this is your time. But you can use my time and now to look at your future in the police. Not all of them, but I'm happy we are seeing slowly by slowly it coming. Very soon maybe we are going to have senior officers training and even we are, some of the commanders are appreciating the officers who went for that training mm. are changing 
there is a change in terms of how they work how they treat people it's not all of them who appreciate but i believe that we cannot say that we can stop there the journey has started and we are still walking we may stop at some point we may rest but the journey is continuing the model that i mean you were discussing just today in the context of the police what does that look like you have a group of what, a dozen or 15 or so police i guess with a facilitator or a couple of facilitators to help them discuss their experiences is that roughly what it looks yeah, like yeah yeah it looks like that too. actually we we are learning from not even the materials very much but some of the experiences that are coming out are related to the, these materials mm. but now it's own one own experience because psychologically maybe this person has never shared i have seen in this program mm. somebody saying i've never shared this experience with anybody this is the first time i'm doing so giving a space because this is something that is in your heart it's bottled mm. it is a balloon and before it it bursts it's better to just leave the space for that balloon to go down i've seen it happen i mean the key there is as you said is is a is a safe space for this right a welcoming space for that how do you achieve that for a group of police because you can't have i assume a an outside facilitator by themselves come in and necessarily have the right level of trust yeah. right i as a police officer and my other colleagues were part of developing yeah. this mom compia we are privileged that we understand the police and we are from inside the police we are actually now the lead people to open up for the police because the the the, the, the civilian may not be may not be having that that element of knowing what is the police mm. what is their culture so it's coming out well because the civilian will bring his wealth mm-hmm. maybe academically or privately but the police officer like for me now when i share my story the officers actually identify themselves with me when i tell them about my shooting shooting yeah. i tell them about how i was uh, 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 i mean abducted in mm-hmm. turkana oh this is me so when this civilian maybe uh, facilitator comes in is able even now to enter and even feel have a feeling of experiences within the police and mm-hmm. i think this is one way that even the civilian can come out i appreciate that one of some of the facilitators have now changed their perception towards the police mm-hmm. some of them had very negative like the gentleman who is coming here next to me for mau oh yes <laughs> he was a negative yes being termed as al shabab and being arrested mm-hmm. but right now he's here training the police officers actually he's in my class i'm giving him a lot of time so that he can be he can actually be bringing out that bad element that was left mm-hmm. and put a space for the peaceful moment for him and the police yeah that must be interesting introducing him as someone who has been arrested i don't know how many times and and um, will himself say that yeah had ex- extremely negative views it's fair to say on the police for a long time actually he does himself yeah. in his series in his uh, sessions he will always uh, come up with the stories stories and he will share one by one this time at the airport this time at the ferry this time at the town yeah. in a matatu or in a bus he'll do it and the police appreciate in some proportion of police must have clinical mental health 
conditions must develop, you know, acute PTSD, must, yeah. uh, some would have diagnosable depression and so on, which, which need you know, medical treatment. Is there a pathway for that? I mean, when, oh, when, yeah, yeah, when you yeah. identify people who yes, like, yes, clearly yes, need yes. that sort of yeah, thing. Yeah, we, we have some police officers in the rehabs yeah. who are alcoholic and drugs. We have them actually in some of the rehabs. We have, I have had to recommend some of them to for the rehab, some of them to psychiatric in hospital, uh, mental health hospitals. Mm. We have that, yeah. There's the scope to Yeah, there is. There is. Actually, we have the medical people within the police who actually now recommend them for further mental speciality in the people with speciality in mental health. For example, Madari Hospital or the provinces where we have the mental institution. Is there a stigma around that? Yeah, you cannot it? run away. You cannot run away from that. That one is obvious. Stigma is there, but how, how to handle it? I, mean, I imagine people would be reluctant to do that because it will yes, look, even it will coming, look bad. Yes, even right? coming for counseling, yeah. because you're all mild. This is a, a coward. It's a coward or he's sick. That's why he's going for counseling. Maybe he's, oh, he's contracted HIV or maybe he has uh, some family issues. There's a stigma. But how do we build up? Build up by starting accepting ourselves, moving away that denial. Mm. That's how we start. I mean, there's there's space for this kind of program, which is dealing with individual groups of of police. But that's you know that's fifteen people, twelve, fifteen people at a time, and the NPS is a yeah. very big institution. Right? Yes. Uh, where where do you want to see this go in the future because this this is a part-time sort of thing, yes, thing yes, for you right yes, but I, yes. it's clearly important to you do you have sort of larger ambitions for what you would like the to 15 see member is more accommodative for the purpose of understanding and for the purpose of uh, that bonding so i would want to see in the near future maybe us doing uh, maybe per week we are doing maybe like 10 20 20 groups of 15 15 and then out of those 10 groups 15 people we can now uh, get maybe other facilitators but this one depends on the resources because putting them here is money as for us to come here is money i just believe that this is a very good model not the big number just for the purpose of people coming this is an in-depth talking about our hearts inside I just wish I can be doing this for the rest of my life in the police. Um, I'm afraid I have to go in the next five years. You have to retire? I have to retire at the age of 60. But I believe I can still continue doing it even when I'm retired. I think so. And also, or if I get an opportunity, I can retire early because I have the option. Mm-hmm. I'm, I've reached the mandatory retirement age 50 mm-hmm. so I can retire and continue doing this when I'm outside from an insider if I get that opportunity I'll be happy but I would just love to do this in the police or outside the police I think you can I think you can keep doing it why not yeah sure sure so that's the insider perspective our second half is more of an outside in look because Bonfass is very much a civilian and used to work in peacebuilding performing arts. That, on its face, may sound like a slightly unlikely background for helping to facilitate these processes with serving police officers, and in some cases, parts of the police service that are 
are really quite notorious uh, for all Kenyans. We start off by discussing how this work with the NPS fits into the wider social context, what it means for Kenyans more broadly. Okay, so the kind of work we are doing is uh, social healing work, but it's informed by a very deep beliefs in uh, human agency, but also like in uh, very strong beliefs also in uh, what can really lead to solid changes, especially structural changes mm -hmm. in the society we are living in today. Uh, the whole point also is how it looks at individual well-being and mm -hmm. how that uh, links into the bigger structural issues, mm. you know. Because when you look at it, you look at, for example, underlying issues that drivers of violence, which majority of them are your structural issues. And you are looking at things, for example, like cultural trauma. You are looking at things like historical trauma. You are looking at things like intergenerational trauma. Mm -hmm. These are very complicated things so that the conflicts of yesterday become the conflicts of today, you know? Mm. And they don't just impact society at large. They start by impacting individuals and how individuals also start to view the world and make sense of their world. For example, if you're dealing with a mother mm. who has, whose children have like crossed the border to Somalia or have been killed, by the police or the government or by Al-Shabaab, then it's much more than just direct violence. Mm. It affects this family's well-being. It also affects how they are going to look at relationship with other people from other, like mm. for example, people who represent government or people who are of different uh, religious or ethnic identities. This, that makes this program to be a little bit more practical. It is an ally mm. of people who are seeking to heal, especially to heal trauma. For police also, I think it's not really different when we are given an opportunity to say, for example, how do police also see themselves, especially because social conflict or, or this kind of protracted violence makes the line between perpetrator and victim to become blood. Even though the way people frame their conflict when they are impacted by, uh, by, by traumatizing violence is that they always look at themselves as victims <coughs> and always classifying the enemies in quotes as perpetrators. Mm. But at the end of the day, when you look from our own experience working with the police, in Kenya, we've discovered also that police are also victims of traumatizing experiences. Mm. So it becomes critical when you do this kind of work to be able to look, to relook and to rethink binaries and the way people look at things in terms of good versus evil narratives. Mm. Yeah. Was that difficult for you personally? The relationship between the public and the police in Kenya is is difficult and that's yeah. been illustrated you know even this week very yeah. dramatically. Yeah. I'm curious how you came to be in that 
role? Do you have a particular background or experiences that meant you were interested in it? So my journey, my journey of life is a little bit, uh, it's not very long. <laughs> I'm young, but I started to work in the peace building world mm-hmm. as a, a performing artist using theater. Okay. Using the metaphor of theater. Yeah. Performing arts to help people be able to reflect on conflict and also analyze their social conditions and also imagine how change could happen. So using theater as a, as, as a mirror or a laboratory to be able to see how social change could happen. Mm. So coming with that background into doing what I'm doing and also I spent some time studying uh, about peace building mm. and especially looking at new thinking in the peace building world. I worked in the peace building world with my fellow peace workers for a long time. Mm. But much of the work we were doing was basically addressing the symptoms of the effects of violence rather than going deep to the underlying root causes of violence. So having emanated from that school of thought, when I went back to school, I started to look at some of the things I was doing before as not being the right things to be done, mm. especially when you're dealing with places where the cycles of violence are almost like protracted, you know, mm. or there is recurring violence all over periods of time. That gave me a different perspective so that I started to think like if I wanted to work in the peace building world, I would like to have a more holistic approach to looking at violence and that also inspired me now to work with the police a lot of people especially the human rights movement which i was a member yeah. kenya the right space approach looks at at us versus them looks at the police as the perpetrators and the citizens as, as victims yeah pretty much but that is not the reality the reality is that we should be asking ourselves what is the underlying reason behind police violent behavior in Mm. Kenya. What is inspiring that? What is motivating police? Nobody wakes up in the morning and say, I'm going to be a very violent person, you know? A tiny, 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 tiny minority class. Exactly. So we started to want to listen to the stories of police officers. Mm. They say, if you listen to the story of your enemy, then you are going to shift your perspective about them. The biggest problem is that for a very long time when we say, they are the bad guys, we are the good guys, then we shut the door of, of dialogue mm-hmm. and sincere, authentic conversation, you know? Mm. So one of the reasons, one of the things that have led us to deeper reflection on the kind of work we are doing, especially with police officers, is the fact that police are victims in one case and they can be perpetrators in another case. Mm. And they have their own needs Perpetrators and, and, and victims, all of them have needs. So you are looking at what are the underlying needs that this, all these people are trying to meet or to satisfy mm-hmm. that can inspire the kind of behavior we are watching. But we also discovered that the same people have the capacity and the ability to change the story, to change the narrative, to change the behavior. If not only a safe space, because right now there's a lot of talk about safe space, 
which is critical. Mm. But we also need brave space, you know, where people can be able to transform their story and their narrative without without the fear of being, um, for example, facing reprisals. Yeah, that must be very difficult yeah. with the NPS as an institution. Yeah. I imagine it must be difficult to build that level of trust yeah. in the process and in the people yeah. for serving officers to engage yeah. authentically. Honestly, it's, it's not been easy. Traditionally and historically, the relationship between citizens and police is fraught with suspicion and fear and mistrust. Mm. But nothing is eternally difficult to change. So the conversation began by doing a pilot project mm. with the National Police Service. And with time, there was need, there was commitment, there was ongoing relationships and ongoing conversations about mm. how can we make this relationship take a different form, go to the next level. Where we have been able to train up to about 300 police officers and we have been able to engage some of the most notorious police units that most citizens of Kenya will shake at mm. the mention of these units, for example. And it's not because we have anything magical, it's just because we are, we are trying to do our best. Yeah. Yeah, and believing in the humanity behind the uniform that we see. Yeah, I am just wondering at a practical level, you mm. are getting 12 to 15 police in a room and encouraging them to share experiences which, you know, most of the time in their career they have discouraged from openly talking about, or at least in that way. So how do you get them across, I mean, not you alone, of course, but how collectively do you get them across that bridge? How do you get them to a point where they're willing to, you know, sitting in that room, where they're willing to share that kind of very personal stuff and see the value in doing so? We do the small things, like creating space. Intentionality, mm -hmm. for example, for example, we sit in a circle. Sitting in a circle, it's counter, it's counterintuitive, especially when you think about like very formal cultures. Like yeah. police culture is very formal culture. It is. The other approach is that we use materials that are very adapted to adapt learning. They are very experiential, and they also use them pictures and symbol as uh, as metaphors mm -hmm. for people to be able to to have the safe space to share their experiences. For example, when you talk about like the brain, the picture yeah. of the brain, everyone becomes curious to know uh, how the brain works. The facilitators don't talk about the brain in very complex ways, the way a neurosurgeon will talk about it. But they try to relate the brain to the normal everyday experiences of a police officer. For example, uh, when they see the thermometer and they see how the thermometer as a metaphor, as a symbol, can be used for self-regulation. People start to identify the red zone, the green zone, and the hyperarousal and hyperarousal 
things in a very like demystified language that alone causes a lot of officers to start to think by the way why can't i use like the simple techniques mm. like breathing exercises to reg- self regulate there's a background condition here which is that you don't obviously influence a lot of the structural drivers of conflict so people leave the space sort of more equipped perhaps to deal with their own emotional and psychological state but they're returning to a community situation where the same stressors and and pressures and threats exist they leave the room and they go back into a into a deployment in some part, a particular part of the country and the same chain of command and the same sort of external environment that creates uh, stress and trauma in the first place do you get pushback do you get resistance from people saying that the you know the real problems are still there how do you manage that hmm. that tension yeah so what what we engaged in the kind of work we engaged in is is uh, actually is cultural work because a lot of what has created the the prevailing conditions now goes back to like we said deeper cultural issues deeper structural issues police service is a historical institution in Kenya it has a history it mm-hmm. has a culture and individuals who work within these institutions all over a period of time are initiated in institutional cultures what it means is that we don't get surprised or shocked when we find out that probably what we are trying to do probably will meet resistance but we we look at humans as assets and that is why we emphasize so much on individual healing and also creating human agency so that people reclaim their own human agency and as agents they start to understand their social and cultural realities and start to analyze that those conditions and see how change could happen mm. because like i said before change that does not come from within cannot be sustained because our healing work is not necessarily aimed at creating external change for people mm. or the facilitator creating change for anyone it's about creating room so that what is inside people can make can find a way of coming out and then people can be able they bring change based on their human agency because i come from the school of uh, of thought in in the peace building world that believes in something called critical emancipatory peace building mm-hmm. critical emancipatory peace building believes in people having the agency to critically analyze their conditions social conditions and also breaking internalized oppression and reclaiming their human agency yeah. and becoming agents for their own change yes i'm curious how it is that you came to be doing this specifically you said that you you came to realize that uh, this was a this was something that was worth doing i'm 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 curious how you came to realize that yeah. what prompted you to think specifically about 
police experiences and, and what could be done to address that share of the of the problem? So I'm Kenyan and one of the biggest challenges we've had here, especially after the advent of multipartism, we have had problems, especially political problems. And majority has always led to upsurge in police brutality against unarmed civilians. There has been like increase in crime and that alone, that situation has created victims among police officers but also among citizens. Yep. So as a peace builder, a lot of us are trained mostly also much of the time sort of to be humanitarian workers mm. rather than rather than people that work to empower communities. You see? Mm-hmm. Providing social services is good. But if you don't have people who have agency, you are not going to have social change sure. that is sustainable. So I spend a lot of work, for example, working with aid organizations, this part of the work. It's mostly, I don't know how to call that, it's mostly like humanitarian, uh, meeting the immediate needs of people. Yeah, service delivery. Probably that's their mandate. I don't want to say they're not doing a good job. Sure. But that is not the end of the story. It should always be the beginning of the biggest social change story. Bigger social change story is the humanization of oppressed people. And the oppressed people finding pathways and opportunities. Because again, oppression and trauma robs people of choices. Mm-hmm. Healing and transformation, social change and transformation helps people to see that they have myriad choices to mm-hmm. make in in places where it seems like there are no choices to make. So from my work experience working with communities, I had to work with communities first before I worked with the police. And when I look at the police, I don't look at the police as uh, uniformed, uh, militarized, you know, Mm. people. I look at them as, as another social group that is also yearning for, that has legitimate needs you know, mm. and it also has a, a very important role to play in this society. Because society be, begets police that it deserves. So, the healing of police officers in Kenya is closely connected to the healing of the society. If the society is transformed, police institution will be transformed. So, I look at, at it like that. Again, we are a very unique society. We are post-colonial society, you know? And that, that kind of history comes with a lot of psychological baggage for a group of people. Yeah, sure. Bringing change to this kind of people from outside mm. might not be sustainable. That is why I'm belaboring the point of like, people have to have agency that is rising from within. Because a lot of interventions we have seen in the past is that agency comes from outside or from an external power. Mm. And that does not sustain change at the grassroots. Yeah, yeah I think I mean, you will get no argument from me. I completely mm. concur on that point. I think what is unusual is applying that mindset 
to yeah. police as an institution yeah. Yeah. is the phrase you used was people who are oppressed. And yeah. I think many of your former colleagues, if you said to them, well, the police are a group that are in some ways <laughs> oppressed, they would react. That's it. <laughs> They'd react the strongly. They are oppressed. <laughs> and you see, and the truth is that they're oppressed. Because for us, mm. the work we are doing mental is not necessarily mental health work. It's a multidisciplinary work mm -hmm. that borrows from different disciplines. Mm -hmm. But at heart, the heart of it, actually, even for advocates of mental health, the most sustainable mental health approach is the one that is rooted in social justice. Because if you do it like that, then what you're going to do is you're going to have holistic approach to dealing with a complex issue that is social conflict, you know, so that we avoid essentializing medicalization, for example, you know, biomedical approaches, you know, yeah. to, to social transformation, especially for communities that I just said, communities that are really like historically impacted by different forms of violence. And violence, I say, it is not just direct violence. Mm. It is different types of violence. Child abuse is a form is violence. Gender-based violence is violent, just like mm -hmm. violent extremism. You know, there is a lot of research now showing that people can get PTSD just because of being in in homes and families where there is physical or emotional abuse. So. The separation and the essentialization or reifying one form of violence over others somehow is not really mm. based on social justice. Yeah, it does, it does make me reflect that much of the conventional way of thinking about mental health is quite individualistic mm. and shorn of its social context yeah. to a large extent, particularly where you have communities or social groups that have been historically been subject to repeated cycles of violence. Yeah. That sort of has to be the point of departure for yes. thinking about the mental health, not yes. Yes. something that comes at the end, right? Mm. Was, has it been difficult working on this issue? I feel like, it's been I feel difficult. like, I feel like some of your it's colleagues very, wouldn't, wouldn't get it. It's very difficult. I can, that one I can tell you for free, it's very it's, it's difficult because, first of all, we are innovating. Mm. And we are working in uncharted waters. We are trying, we are trying to, to innovate. But you know, the opposite is even worse. If mm. you don't do anything, then nothing is going to change. Like I told you, some of the greatest changes that we are going to see in future is the conversations we begin today. So we must have the courage and the commitment to do things with the future in our mind, you know. Mm. And at the end of the day also, it's not about like how are we able to be able to win over others mm. so that we create individuals within the police service, for example, or the community who believe the same way and look at life the way we look at it ourselves. So that these ones become the everyday heroes, everyday police officers, 
if they understand, if they have this bigger scope about social problems, you know? Mm. And then we are working with members of community and they have the same scope. If these guys work together, we are going to start a silent revolution, you know? Mm. It's a very peaceful revolution that is led by people who are armed with warm hearts. You are listening to One Step Forward. We are all about stories of working for social good in hard times and tough places. My name is Ian Quick. Thanks for listening. And just a quick reminder, this podcast thing only really works by word of mouth. So if this episode resonated with you, please share with someone you know who might be interested. Rate us on iTunes or anywhere else for that matter. Join the conversation at onestepforward.fm. Thanks and bye for now.